Well, I must say, I'm excited to see all your smiling faces tonight. Let's hope that uh, we're all smiling by the end of this. So let's get started. As college, <laughs> as college students, I'm sure you're all, you all know the steps you go through when you're meeting new people. You're asking for someone's name, um, and you get into questions about their background, like where are you from, what's your major, and what are you trying to do when you're asking these questions? Well, if you're like me, you're probably still trying to remember their name or trying to think up the answer to the question that you think they're going to be asking next. But what are you really attempting to do? Well, you're trying to establish a similarity, a point of connection on which you can both start to discuss something that mutually interests you. Generally, the deeper and more personal this point of similarity, the deeper the bond um, that develops. And so, what about the people who are different from us, who are different from you as you interact with these um, people and, and try and find similarities? Well, these are the people that we struggle with, right? These are the people that we might not have a second conversation with, or they might turn into the people that um, we just disagree with later on. But this goes to show us just how diverse humanity really is. Because we're not going to connect with people on a personal level all the time simply on our similarities and differences. Because they're just, sometimes our similarities are too minor to overcome the huge differences that we have interactions with others. So what does this mean for us then? Are we doomed to uh, struggle with each other, to constantly never be able to find a unity um, in life? Well, only, well, this search is, is just one aspect in the search for unity in diversity. And Ravi Zacharias, who is one of my favorite speakers, talks about this a lot. And he explains that our word university actually derives from this. We, we get our universities from this, this search. The very core of the word gets the idea of unity in diversity. And as college students or college graduates, you all understand how complex and deep each one of your subjects is. I mean, there's just so many different uh, subjects to explore, and each one just has an incredible complexity that we don't even um, get to know truly well through our four years here. And this isn't just found in our college. Our country is founded on this. E pluribus unum, that is the Latin phrase written on every one of our coins, which means out of one, many, or out of many, sorry, one. So as in the university where we all come together to, to study a diversity of subjects, what could be so intricately connected to each subject to plumb the very depths of it, and yet so general as to unify, to give a meaning and a purpose to all of them, and be behind all of them. And only God, the creator of all, is diverse enough to connect us on a deep level. He who made every subject, or who made the object of every subject, and gave each of you your passions and proclivities, is big enough to connect us. And you see, to deny his existence is to find unity in a general and shallow connection, such as... Um, you know, to say that we're connected because we live on the same planet. You just, you keep getting more general 
as you go further out from who you are as an individual. And we know that this, this general connection doesn't really connect us. We see wars and all sorts of atrocities committed. But to ignore unity altogether and to focus on uh, the complexity of each thing, you're, you're still going to find yourself asking why, what is the purpose? What's the meaning? See, God is the common denominator that is both so personal to each and every one of us and yet so general and comprehensive to mankind that in him alone we find the conduit to connect with each other. Indeed, here in the God of the Bible, we find a super personal God. We find a unity and a diversity that is unlike anything else. We find one God in three persons. So now as far as the church goes, I know you're thinking, well, what about the church? Because we see divisions in the church. We don't see unity in Christians all over the place. And that's a great point. However, in the very small and limited time I have tonight, I will only summarize just a couple points here. And I just want you to know that the Bible makes it clear that we're not made perfect the instant we come to Christ. This process of sanctification or being made perfect takes time and continues after we die. Well, is actually perfected after we die. We still struggle while we yet live on this earth. And also the Bible affirms that those who say that there's going to be those who say they're Christian, but they're not. It also talks about false teachers or people who lead people astray, claiming to be Christian and claiming to believe in the Christian faith. To put it very simply, um, this problem does not disprove the principle. It is biblical and to be expected. Today, I just want to talk to you about a personal God, our personal God. This idea is a tough one but it is incredibly integral to our understanding of who God is and to joy, to find joy in God. Most people seem to believe in something, something more than nothing, something that is everything, a formless, general, abstract, benevolent being. And this is the belief known as pantheism. Today I want to talk to you about a being who is so personal to each and every one of us and yet so loving and concrete, concrete that it threatens and sometimes scares us. Let me share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. He said, Men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract and negative deity to the living God. The pantheist God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There is no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. You see, we find the pantheist notion of God um, to leave us free to do whatever it is that we want. But at what cost? The Christian God is troublesome in part because his truth affects us all on a very personal level. And so I want to take us to our text tonight, which is Mark 5, 21 through 43. And I'll start reading here. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may live and be made well. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman 
who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And I want to open us in prayer. Uh, dear Father, I just thank you for our time here together, and I pray that um, you just speak into our hearts what you have from your word, God. I pray that you'd help us to understand just how personal and intimate a relationship with you really is, God. And I just thank you for all that you've given to us, and uh, bless us in, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, I have three points tonight that I want to share with you about how our God is personal. One, God responds to the desperate and those in need. Two, God loves personally, individually. And three, God allows things that we may see as bad to accentuate his love. So let's observe God's response to these desperate people. I want us to notice what uh, is happening first in this account. You see, Jairus, he's begging Jesus to come save his daughter. Put yourself in his shoes. The Gospel of Luke makes it clear that this is actually his only daughter. He's on his knees before Jesus and tells Jesus that his daughter is at the point of death. So this is immediate. This is, he needs this healing now. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, sorry, I can't. I have more important things to do. I mean, he is the Messiah and he is the chosen one uh, who's going to save the world. But that's not his response. He doesn't ignore this man. And he doesn't even ask how far away he lives. No, he just goes without question. You see, this desperate man seeks Jesus' aid, and Jesus gives it. In the beginning, in the next scene, verse 25, we get introduced to a woman who has been struggling with a discharge of blood for 12 years. Not only this, but as she seeks aid, she ends up suffering for it. Verse 26 says that she has spent everything that she has and has only gotten worse. Imagine spending all that you own to get better and nothing ever happens for 12 years except that it just gets worse. Now, there is some context behind this that is helpful for us to understand what this woman has really been going through. You see, in the Old Testament law, such a woman who touches or such a woman is unclean. And anyone that touches her becomes unclean. And it even goes further than that, because if you touch her clothes, you become unclean. If you touch her bed, if you touch anything that she sits on, you are unclean, and you have to go wash, and you'll be made clean in the evening of that day. And so I just want to say that this issue is not only painful in the physical aspect, but it also makes it tough to interact with others. She'd have to inform someone if she 
of her problem, which would make this issue a public one. And imagine those 12 years of publicly being seen as, seen as unclean. It's a long time. And bearing that in mind, consider her hesitation to even touch Jesus. She knows she's going to make him unclean. Also, there's a huge crowd around her, and she doesn't want this to get public. Who would? But what happens in verse uh, 30 and 33? And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power, had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you? And yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus notices when she touches the fringe of his robe. It's the very fringe. She doesn't even touch his skin. In a crowd. Can you imagine? Um, he, he perceives this extremely desperate person. She doesn't want to be noticed, so she's not going to touch him all the way. And she's not only desperate for healing, but she's desperate to be accepted, to be loved. You see, 12 years of ostracism from society, from your friends, for anyone is extremely painful. Can you even imagine? She doesn't seem to want to reveal her problem, though, and Jesus doesn't call her out to do so. He doesn't announce what is wrong with her. Instead, he just shows her love and kindness. Now, I want to look at Psalms 34, 4 through 10. And it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then Psalm 40, verse 10, or verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. These verses make clear what we just saw in the text. Those who are desperate enough to seek God finds that God responds. The verse also shows us that we're all desperate for God. You see, Ver, or Psalm 40, and possibly 34, I'm not sure, but 40 is written by David. And David is king of Israel, so he's got all he needs. But he's desperate for God. So, as we've seen, God has responded to both Jairus and the woman, two extremely desperate and needy people. Now, as we continue with the text, here we get to God's personal nature, his individual uh, love for each of us. See, Jesus notices the woman. This woman who, one, doesn't want to be noticed, and two, is in the midst of a huge crowd. Check out what he, how he responds. He wants to interact with her and to heal her more than, and heal more than just her bleeding. He takes time out of the haste to save Jairus' daughter, who is dying right now, to speak with her. He asks, who touched me? And then just waits for the response. You can feel the tension is building. The disciples are like, let's go. It doesn't matter. We have to hurry to save Jairus' daughter. 
I can just picture the silent suspense as people are waiting to see what's happening as Jesus sits there and waits for a response. Suddenly, she steps forward, and imagine how nerve-wracking that would be. She's probably thinking uh, she's about to get rebuked. I know I would be. For making him unclean. And look at her emotion. She's trembling. Suddenly, all the tension snaps. And there she is on her knees, just as Jairus was before her, before him, trembling. However, how does Jesus react? He reacts in kindness and mercy. Not to rebuke her. Not to tell her that she's in the wrong, but to bless her. He interrupts the haste of saving the other man's daughter to acknowledge a woman who has been living as an outcast, to show her compassion and care, the care that she has been craving. And he knows what we need without asking. Notice, she doesn't ask him for this care. She needs it. And he gives it to her, and she doesn't ask. This was a moment between Jesus and the woman. I mean, the crowd doesn't know exactly what's going on here. And I want you to know that God notices you as an individual. He sees you in your difficulties and your struggles and whatever you're going through in life. He's personal. In Psalms 139, 1 through 6, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path in my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. And then Psalm 139, 16 through 18 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Imagine that. A God who is so personal and individual that even his thoughts for each one of us can't be counted. Now, I'm going to take a little side note here. And look at verse 34, which says that it was her faith that made her well. In Hebrews 11:1 1 states, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you're a Christian here, I want to ask you, are you living out your faith? Notice how she does it. It's quite simple. She desperately seeks to touch him so that she would be healed. If she had no faith, she simply would not have tried, yet she gives it a shot. Are you giving it a shot? I want to encourage you, it really doesn't take much faith to see God start to work in your life. And if you're not a Christian, but you want access to this, three, this personal God, you start from faith. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, so we've seen Jesus respond to both of these desperate people. But in responding to the woman individually, he has taken time away from the man. And let's continue reading our passage, verse 35 through 43. 
While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. See, here's our third point. God allows things that we may seem as, see as bad to accentuate his love. In the time it takes Jesus to heal the woman, Jairus' daughter has died. Look carefully now how Jesus handles this situation. Again, he doesn't panic or shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's too bad. He doesn't just simply put the situation off. No, he simply states, do not fear, only believe. You see, God is not surprised or in shock when things take a turn for the worse in your life. And in fact, um, in Romans 8.28, uh, it shows us that he's in control and that he works such turns for the good of the believer, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Consequently, Jesus takes this all in stride. He questions to do the Jews as to why they are all making such a commotion. And these, I mean, this is the ruler of the synagogue. And likely his friends are all prominent Jews. So they know the Old Testament here. And remember, um, or, and this matches the response of the crowd, as they, you know, they all are also uh, sweeping and wailing. And they laugh at him. But notice that there is no commendation of faith as with the woman. Jesus is simply going to heal this girl out of love and mercy. I love how he concludes this in verse 43 because he caringly sees this child is hungry, such a small need, especially after such a big miracle. And he asks them to feed her. You see, God knows every need that you have, big or small. And so God allows things that we see as bad to show his love. We thought that the, they all thought the child was dead, and that was the end of the story. But no, God was going to do a greater miracle. They thought that Jesus' care for the, and love for this woman was the end of the daughter's life. But no, Jesus takes this opportunity to show his love, and he raises her from the dead. But I want you to pay attention here, because notice something. Notice that Jesus is able to uphold the individual importance and worth of both of these people in an instance where we would have thought he could only affirm one, the woman or Jairus. And now there's another example, a greater example of God working through a horrible situation to accomplish something greater. And this other miracle hits a lot closer to home. You see, he worked it for you and me individually, and yet corporately. 
And there's a problem with this idea of a personal God because we've rejected it. We rejected God. And the first sin in the garden separated us from a personal fellowship with God. And how are we without God? Well, history testifies to our inability to fix our own problems, to connect or settle our differences. These differences have always stood in the way and separated us. No matter who leads humanity or what type of government we employ, man cannot rule man without bloodshed, pain, and dissension. This, for this reason, Jairus and the woman of our story suffer in the first place because they have rejected God as well. And God, allowing us to choose this, has removed his presence from us. He created us to live in his presence, and so by nature of that, to live outside of his presence is to be broken and missing the very thing that holds us together. And this is the hard truth of the gospel. Yet God, in his love and mercy, has given us a second chance. You see, God has overcome the problem for all time. The greatest miracle that Jesus performed was reconciling you and me to God. The miracle of his death and subsequent resurrection. Jesus came into the world to save us from ourselves. And now I want to look at another psalm, Psalm 103, 10 through 14. And this says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This redemption, or, yeah, this redemption from our sins and subsequent intimacy and love with Christ is possible only because God sent his son to bear the wrath that we deserve, that we may live with God yet again, conquering that problem of um, our separation from God and our brokenness. And this isn't only to go to heaven. A lot of people think that it's, it's just for heaven or I'm saved now. And this doesn't affect how I live. But no, you have communion with God now and here. It's not perfect as it will be, but we have it here. And this is where God gets super personal, much more than you expect. So Ephesians 2, 17 through 18 says that, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We get tied directly into having access and to share in the fellowship of the Trinity. This uh, God in three persons. This is extremely intimate. And we don't become God. By having access into the Trinity, we don't become the Trinity or part of the Trinity. No, we remain distinctly separate, and yet we still have this crazy intimacy as the Spirit dwells within us. 
And can it get any more personal than having a super personal God in relationship with us? And notice what the result of this is. In verse 19 through 22, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice what the result is. Humanity has found unity in diversity. Suddenly, we have something that links us all together, something so intimate and something so general that we can find peace with each other. And as I was making this sermon, uh, Tyler said something that I really liked, and so I, I wrote it down. He said that a personal God doesn't divide himself into a sea of individuality, but he manages to be intensely personal yet unifying at one time. And so, in order for you to have this relationship with God, you need to come to the truth. You need to believe in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we just saw, this is not an easy truth to swallow. We saw the woman who faced her truth in verse 33. And that wasn't easy, but she was desperate. And so are we. And I want to close with an aspect of how this truth affects you and me. You see, the truth of the gospel, if it is truth, by the very nature of truth, changes everything. I can't stress that enough. We view everything in life through this lens, every single little detail. As we saw in the beginning that our creator gives us meaning and purpose, in the gospel of Jesus, we also see that God gives each of us individual worth. Where the spirit lives in each of us, and an infinite being descends to save us. We have a treasure to share, but it's a treasure that isn't easy to accept because in doing so, we're in the wrong. And now, our society has become frightened of the truth. And I want to talk to you a little bit just about an article that I read by a Dr. Vince Vitale. And he explains that this is because the trajectory of truth seems so tough. Violence, shame, extremism, terrorism, hate, this seems to be the result of standing for the truth. You see, we have terrorists, and what are they doing? They're standing for the truth that they believe in, but this is costing lives. We have Christians who are called hateful because they stand for the truth. And he explains that in attempting to steer clear of this, our society has gone the route of love, but it's gone too far. We have a pluralistic way of thinking now because we don't want to disagree with anyone. We want to accept it all. Yet, if I were to have the opposite view of the one who is pluralistic, I dare say they would disagree with me. This is how far it gets. It doesn't get very far. And Dr. Vitale expounds more on how God has taken on this balance between truth and love. You see, Jesus, when he's questioned by Pilate, states that he is the truth. And we know that God is love. And that's 1 John 4, 8. You see, God spoke the truth in love by sending his son to die for us. In the very act of disagreeing with us, he saved us. And this is how God speaks truth in love. He holds the balance. 
And I just want to kind of close here with an illustration um, from my own life of how God is personal. You see, a lot of you know that I used to work in Libby, Montana, and I, I still, I guess I do um, every summer, but the first summer and the third summer were particularly hard because as I worked there, 20 days of work, 10 days off, those 20 days I'm constantly alone and the reception isn't very good. And so it's, it's, there's like times when just walking through, I work with bears, so I, I walk and hike around a lot. And there are times when just walking through the vegetation and it just gets extremely frustrating. And there's no one to share it with. You have great ideas. You can't talk to anyone about them. And that was really tough. And I swore after that first summer that no amount of money was ever going to bring me back to that job. But pain, in its nature, is easy to forget. And so I went back the third summer. And I think it's funny because it's, it's, I think we get into trouble a lot because we do forget pain. And um, so I go back for the third summer. And again, that first month was just really tough. And it's also the rainy season in Libby, so that adds to it because I hate the rain. It just really is so bugging, <laughs> especially when you're out in it all day. But if it hadn't been for my fellowship with God, for having someone I can communicate to during those times when I'm all alone, I wouldn't have been able to make it through by being content in my loneliness. I was happy. I was fine. I was able to learn to live with it and not live with it in the sense of apathetically, I was able to live with it um, without being depressed and, and just content and happy. And so I just want to close with this last uh, statement here. Your problem in believing in Christ is not intellectual. And this notion of a personal God or the problem of this pain, it's a heart problem. And as Ravi, the speaker who I mentored, mentioned before, uh, spoke once, and I paraphrase here, is it so inconceivable that in a world where pain keeps us from harm, pain acts to keep us from harm, you know, we don't keep burning our hand or whatnot, is it so unlikely that God uses pain to save a soul from damnation? In a world with myriads of ideas, some reasonable, others contradictory in nature, I can reasonably say that I have faith in God, in Jesus Christ. And as a Christian, in my faith, I tell you that Jesus is the truth and the only hope for man. And so let's close in prayer. Dear Father, I just thank you for our time tonight and our uh, opportunity to go through your word and to discover more about just the incredible intimate nature of who you are and yet the incredible overarching impacts this has on every single one of us, God. I just pray that as we leave tonight, we'd uh, think more about it, that it wouldn't just be something that we leave here in this room, but that we could take with us somewhere. And I just thank you uh, for the opportunity to speak tonight. And I ask that um, we would all find greater joy and greater love and find that which we're looking for in our communion with you, God, our personal God and our Father. We're not friends with you. You're actually our Father.
And I just thank you for that. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.